Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Professor Keith Singer. Thank you for joining us today in our eighth episode of the True Crime Blind Justice podcast. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic in the criminal justice arena, and that is what does law enforcement leadership look like during times of crises? This episode will explore recent cases involving effective and failed law enforcement leadership. I am very excited, not only because, you know, this is such an important topic for today's criminal justice agencies, but also because our guest today is one of the leading experts in the field of not only law enforcement, but most importantly for today's discussion, he's an expert on leadership. Today, I get the opportunity and the privilege to interview Dr. Carlos Rios Colazzo. Now, before I interview Dr. Rios Colazzo, let me tell you a little bit about his unbelievable career and accomplishments. So Dr. Rios Colazzo is a native of San Juan, Puerto Rico. Dr. Rios Colazzo initiated his federal career in May 1998 as a U.S. Border Patrol agent. While operating in Douglas, Arizona, the professor experienced the significant challenges of transnational crimes and other criminal justice issues. In July 1999, Dr. Rios Colazzo joined the U.S. Secret Service as a special agent assigned to the San Juan resident office in Puerto Rico, where he built diverse experience investigating fraud. As part of his career progression, Dr. Rios Colazzo earned a position with the counter-assault team, CAT the Specialized Combat Suppressive Unit of the U.S. Secret Service, responsible for providing tactical support to the personal protection of the President of the United States. Here, the professor served as a team member and acting team leader. Building on these roles, he later joined the Secret Service's Presidential Protective Division, PPD, before transferring to the Special Operations Division, SOD, in the Washington Field Office. After spending nearly six years fighting waste, fraud, abuse, and criminal misconduct affecting the federal oversight of the domestic use of nuclear energy, the professor was promoted to the position of special agent in charge with an investigative entity in Washington, D.C., where he last served as the acting assistant inspector general for investigations. Dr. Rios Colazzo is now the assistant director of the Office of Investigations at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, NRC. The professor holds a Doctor of Philosophy PhD degree with a high distinction in organizational leadership from the John Wesley School of Leadership of Piedmont International University. In his doctoral investigation, he studied the emotional intelligence of educators advancing success in private e-learning systems. As a result of his doctoral work, published domestically and internationally, Dr. Rios Colazzo was an invited presenter at the fourth International Conference on Communication and Management held in Athens, Greece. The professor has also earned graduate and postgraduate degrees, a Juris Doctorate, and a Bachelor of Arts. 
Dr. Rios Colazzo has completed academic work at the University of London and is currently finishing a Master of Laws in the International Legal Studies at the Liberty University School of Law. Dr. Rios Colazzo is a graduate of the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center and the U.S. Secret Service James Rowley Training Center, a certified federal criminal investigator and firearms instructor and fraud examiner. Wow, that's a <laughs> lot. That is a lot. So with no further ado, welcome and good afternoon to Dr. Rios Colazzo. Good afternoon, doctor. Good afternoon, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, spend with me a little bit of time going over this important topic, the topic of leadership, which is so relevant in the uh, law enforcement arena. So thank you for having me in your show. You're welcome. So some of the literature today when discussing criminal justice has to deal with leadership, whether or not it's lacking, uh, what can we do better when it comes to criminal justice leadership. So my first question for you would be, why is law enforcement leadership important to stakeholders, meaning, you know, other law enforcement professionals, the community, victims, survivors, and others? So to address that question, let me go back to a phenomenon that typically happens in law enforcement. Before you even get a badge on a gun, all organizations will send you to an academy. You'll go through a series of weeks where you get trained, you know, in the law, defensive tactics, firearms, use of force, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, a typical phenomenon that happens in law enforcement is that officials get promoted and they never get, typically as part of their organizational growth, they never get training that will lead them to hold that leadership position. So now we're expecting good people doing good work on the field to become leaders overnight. So that doesn't happen. So going back to your question, why is it important? Well, like Chris Lewis explained in his article that he wrote for uh, Police One back uh, last year in September 2022, the professionalism of law enforcement officials and their productivity will ultimately impact public trust. That's the element of credibility that anybody can find out in the leadership literature. Without credibility, you cannot accomplish anything. So why are we talking about public trust? Well, it is important to notice, too, that without public trust, the people will normally become immersed, or I'm sorry, the police will normally become immersed in a, whether it's intentional or unintentional creation of a toxic social relationship that will inevitably produce what's called the you versus them syndrome. So when that happens, police organizations suffer. They typically, as we've seen in the news, they become politicized. You'll see community groups that might not be necessarily familiar with what's happening in the law enforcement arena. But however, they're receiving a negative result of that lack of public trust to now start pressuring politicians and they are asking them to implement you know, limiting regulations. You've seen, for example, people within the media, within political arena, asking for the defunding of the police we would normally see an elevated level of police scrutiny and also the reallocation of assets. And as a result, we see that they will begin, I'm talking about the police force, will begin to experience a very difficult time within their organizations because not only their morale typically uh, goes down because now you're dealing with a very sacrificial uh, line of work where now you don't feel you've been properly appreciated or respected, but also 
that creates a level of defiance and animosity that prevents the police organization from recruiting the best prospects within that community, the very same community that they are sworn to defend. And again, that's going back to what I said originally, that's one of the effects of the you versus them syndrome that I mentioned earlier. So in the end, uh, what we see uh, happening is that the law enforcement organizations that are typically affected by this lack of public trust will begin to operate at a higher risk because uh, their police interactions are now prone to be more of an unfriendly environment. And consequently, what happens is that this leads to a higher probability of incidents where civilians will either feel that they're being victimized by the police. Typically, that will lead to uh, misconduct allegations. And now that department, depending on the size, will have to reallocate assets to investigate those allegations. And when you look at this whole phenomenon from an organizational standpoint, from the leadership standpoint, those are assets that could otherwise be uh, allocated to support crime-fighting actions as opposed to conducting internal reviews. So that's why leadership is so important in law enforcement. So to me, when you were describing that, two words popped out to me, and that was Lack of training, because a lot of the literature says that criminal justice agencies, for whatever reason, they do not put time into training their leadership and or their supervisors as much as they should. Right. And then the word trust. Okay, so training and trust. So do you think those two are connected? And the reason why I ask you is because if those two things are connected, training and trust, what does effective law enforcement leadership look like? And can you provide specific examples at the federal, state, or local levels when it comes to training and trust and things of that nature when it comes to leadership? So you're absolutely correct. Uh, training and trust, they go hand to hand. You cannot do your job properly, or at least as properly as you, you could in terms of maximizing your potential if you're not being properly educated and have the opportunity to apply that new acquired knowledge to see what works, what doesn't work. And when you do that, the better you become at, at that particular function, the higher that level of trust that others watching you perform will increase. So that's important. So again, going back to your question, if we're going to speak about this matter from the organizational standpoint, we'll see, for example, the police force, an effective law enforcement leadership. And I'm going to speak more not only at the state level, federal level, or local level, because this is something that really transcends jurisdictions. This is a universal type of uh, phenomenon. You'll see that proper and effective law enforcement leadership will be exhibited when the police force, whether it's state, federal, or local, uh, it's driven. What I mean by that, it's driven to consistently perform its duties to serve and protect its community within constitutional parameters. That is extremely important. A lot of times you'll see law enforcement officials are very passionate about doing their job but do they really know what their constitutional constraints are? That is extremely important. So it's not just simply passion. It's also, again, going back to the term training, it's being able to understand how far can you go? Where does your authority end? What can you do within your specific authority? So again, summarize my first point, we're talking about a police force that is driven and consistently committed uh, to meeting the needs of the community within constitutional parameters. This will require police officials to be accountable, to be transparent, 
to assume responsibilities for their actions and decisions as opposed to blame others for results that perhaps did not meet their expectations or try to obscure the facts so that their image, their public image, doesn't get tarnished. When you build on that platform, you'll see that the brass will need to understand, number one, the community that, it, that they serve, its history. They need to respect its cultural identity. That is extremely important. You just can't have a, what we call a, a cookie-cutter approach to every community that is out there. We all have different needs, different challenges. So uh, the brass will have to uh, respect the community's cultural identity, the necessities, the virtues and deficiencies of their people. We are not perfect, but at the same time, we are all parts of the community. And once again, police leaders, they need to understand they're also, they play a role in the community. What kind of role am I talking about? They're community leaders. Whether they realize it or not, they serve as community leaders. And I say this because people forget that police officials are also part of the, of the community. If you think about the amount of time that they spend in the community versus what they do at home, they at least spend, what, 40 hours per week? You oh, multiply, Right. Yep. So you multiply that by 52 hours a, a year and a 25-year uh, span, sometimes 30-year span. That is, a, that is a, a, a pretty deep footprint that that individual has within the community, at least presence in the community. So again, those are the, the the things that I'm looking for to see an effective law enforcement leadership organization and individual. You also need to see that leader and that police force to effectively communicate with their people. That should happen within the department, but also outside the, uh, the department. They need to speak clearly and believe and understand that their job is not to impose their views on people, but to guide people to see their vision, be able to teach them the importance and the purpose of what they're trying to accomplish with their uh, strategies and police mission, and also incorporate not only the benefits to the law enforcement community, but also teach the people the role that they play in supporting that police vision and reality. Because at the end, everybody should be looking for the same thing, which is to reach a better future when it comes to the reality of that community and the relationship between you know constituents and the police force. And you know what? What you say is is 100% true. I mean, when you're looking at things that you want in leaders, right? You want transparency. You want responsibility. You want accountability. And when I was doing research for this podcast and I was reading about you and your leadership style and the way you go about things during your long, illustrious career, to me, and now you could tell me if I'm wrong or not, but to me, it seemed like you were a transformational leader. Now, I know what a transformational leader is, but one, do you feel that you're a transformational leader? And two, can you explain what a transformational leader is to the uh, people listening? So to answer your question, I'm more, I could be, depending on the organization that I'm leading, I could be transformational, but I would say I'm more of a servant leader as opposed to transformational. But for you to be an effective leader, you have to be able to apply different models, leadership models, because you have to meet your people where they are. You cannot bring your people to your particular model and believe that that's going to work. But when we deal with transformational, and I have practiced transformational leadership, the first thing that we need to consider is the fact that you cannot lead anybody. You're not going to see this. You're going to read this anywhere in the literature. 
But I'm telling you by experience, over 25 well, that's years. That's why we have you on, doctor. Right, right. <laughs> so, so over 25 years of law enforcement experience, you know, having different roles uh, in leadership, I'm telling you right now, you cannot, it doesn't matter if you're transformational, if you're servant, emotional intelligence, it doesn't matter. You cannot lead someone who's not willing to follow. Yes, so, I totally so, agree. So with leadership, comes along the other side of the coin, which is followership. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we believe that, you know, it's a leader's fault that hasn't been able to connect with people, they hasn't been able to motivate people. But let's face it, uh, we're dealing with, you know, adults, we're dealing with individuals who are have the ability and the freedom to exercise their will. And unless that person is willing to follow someone, it doesn't matter. There's no leadership. It's not going to happen. So going back to the original question, you were asking me what is uh, transformational leadership and how I practiced transformational leadership. When we go back at the literature, for example, we we can cite Norhouse and see that the term of transformational leadership came about in 1973. And if you indulge me for a second, I want to go into some technical aspects of transformational leadership, because we cannot assume that everybody has the same understanding of what transformational leadership is. So very briefly, uh, we'll see that in the literature, the term transformational leadership was coined in 1973, but it worked its way into the leadership arena as a result of a 1978 classic written by uh, James McGregor Burns, and the title of the book is Leadership. Interestingly, when you look at the life and history of uh, McGregor Burns, you'll see that he wasn't necessarily a leadership guru. He was more of a political sociologist. But going back to leadership, because leadership, it's a skill, it's, it's an attribute that transcends different fields. You see that the, the theory normally, and I'm using you know Burns' model, pivots on the idea that the leader will engage others and connect to a level that will allow him or her to reach a higher level of motivation and a higher moral. That is extremely important because when you talk about leadership, you you might see, for example, that people will say, well, how do I know that someone is a leader, somebody's not a leader? Let me challenge you with this. Would you consider uh, Hitler a leader? Yes. Not a good right. leader, not a very good leader, but a, a leader nonetheless, yes. Okay. Uh, what about Bin Laden? Yes. Again, not, right. not a good leader, but a leader nonetheless, yes. Right. So one of the benefits of transformational leadership and going back to the history is that transformational leadership, it's a model that, is, that rests upon two pillars, motivation and morals. So within transformational leadership, one of the things that it does, it helps you make the difference between a leader and someone who will be considered a pseudo leader. So the two examples that I talked about, Bin Laden, Hitler, Fidel Castro, for example, they would not be considered leaders within the framework of transformational leadership because they do not help their people reach a higher level of morality. Right. And that's normally what happens when you see individuals using their level of influence. Now, I'm going back to the basic definition of leadership, somebody who's able to influence others to reach a different level or accomplish something in common. And I'm not citing anybody in specific. It's just simply a late what I call layman term uh, definition of what leadership is. 
then your description of Hitler, Castro, and Bin Laden would be considered leaders. So this is what's so important about leaderships. People talk about leadership without necessarily using the proper model so that we all have the same meeting of the minds. So when it comes to transformational leadership, you're supposed to connect with people. You're supposed to make people reach their best version of themselves. So a good example of transformational leaders will be Gandhi, somebody who was able to teach a, you know, a large group of people that regardless of the current circumstances, there is a better future and there is a way where they can reach a higher level of motivation towards achieving that better goal or that best day, sort of speaking, but also a higher level of morality. MLK is another excellent example of transformational leadership. That's why he's so remembered through this, you know, his, uh, I have the dream. Look how many people followed him. I mean, that's definitely transformational. Right. And without necessarily using violence, even right. though violence was part of the dynamics that were, that were happening within the cause that he was fighting for. He was using the opposite. Instead of using, countering that level of violence that perpetrated the, you know, the abuse and tragedies that were happening during the civil rights movement, he preached, he modeled a different way of doing business. He asked people, he challenged people to hit a, or to reach a higher level of morality, which is be able to influence others, change others without using violence. So when he applies to transformational leadership in law enforcement, as a leader, you have the ability to use a hammer, right? That's discipline. You have somebody who perhaps is not a good performer, somebody who's not necessarily seeking to bring in their best. That is extremely troubling because when you go out there, law enforcement is a very dangerous profession. And all it takes for you to make one bad decision for you not to go back home safe or at least alive. Okay. So that being said, when somebody it's not bringing the best of themselves, that could lead somebody else to get hurt. So as a leader, you just can't let that happen. You have to be able to bring that person up to his or her best. So transformational leadership is one of the excellent tools that are the veil of a, uh, law enforcement official or leader, we're going to call it the brass for our conversation <laughs> okay. purposes here, right? To help that individual understand, number one, that there's a lot more that he or she can bring onto the table, but you, you should not use a punitive approach because at the end of the day, you're not trying to break somebody's spirit. You're trying to make somebody better. Uh, so are there different ways we can, training is one way, connecting with individuals another way. But most importantly, you have to know the person. Sometimes we forget transformational leadership, what it does, it makes people understand that they are not a simple asset of the organization. They're not a tool. They are people. They're human beings. They have history. They have problems. They have aspirations. And as a leader, if you don't take the time to you know, look behind the curtain, you're going to miss out on those things because there's no such thing as a bad employee. It's just simply an employee who has problems. And those problems are affecting his or her commitment and ability to perform at his or her best. So that's that's how transformational leadership in simple terms helps law enforcement officials make their organizations reach a higher level of performance and go from simply being ordinary to be excellent. But it doesn't happen overnight. 
No, absolutely. But you know what? You definitely hit the nail on the head when you brought up Martin Luther King and goals and morality as a transformational leader and to put the right set of morals into the people who are working for you. And if you don't put those right set of morals or if you're too punitive, I mean, you can lose the organization. Oh, absolutely. You, you, and that's another thing. So you, you go into uh, an organization in crisis. And I have the experience of, of dealing with that in the past. And what do you mean by crisis? It is as simple as simply having a level of issues and problems that is not allowing the organization to perform at its best. Depending on, because everybody associates crisis with emergencies. Well, an emergency might be something imminent. And now we're dealing with, with words, but words have meaning. And being able to identify the proper words and apply the proper terms is going to help you diagnose what's happening with the organization and be able to trace down a workable plan. So an organization with crisis will be, I'm going to give you an example. If you have a police force where police officers go out, they respond to, they do an investigation, they respond to a, a situation on the field, and they don't document what happens. But it takes three, four, five months before they even write a report. And by that time, it's no longer a contemporaneous report. It's now something that is going to be based on somebody else or, or the individual's ability to you know, retain that information. That's a problem. One individual, that might be an isolated issue. When it becomes two, three, four, five, it's now it's a norm because it's allowed or at least it's being tolerated within the law enforcement organization. That is a systemic issue. That's a crisis. You have a problem. Now, some people might defer and say, well, I don't know. That's not necessarily a crisis. Yes, it is. Because we're going back to public trust. Why should I believe that what you're putting within the four corners of that paper is a trustworthy account of what happened when you're going and simply reporting on facts that are not concurrent with events? They're not concurrent with investigations. It's what we deal with, you know, time of reporting and the gap between time of reporting and time of investigative activity. That's a problem because if what you're putting within the four corners of that document is not reliable and consistent with what happened, now you're running into a lot of trouble. Now you're running into a trustworthiness, uh, a credibility issue. And if we go back to what I said originally, credibility in leadership, that's your coin. Without credibility, you cannot accomplish anything whatsoever. So. It is important to keep in mind all the things that I just talked about because you don't want to be in a crisis. But even if you are in a crisis, knowing what leadership model you want to apply is going to be extremely important. Yeah. And you know what? I do love how you keep on bringing up public trust and accountability and that if the public doesn't have trust in their law enforcement, it's just not going to work. And the public and law enforcement just won't get along. So we do, as of recent, we have examples of effective leadership. One of those examples would be out on Long Island, just not too long ago, Gilgo Beach serial killer. Uh, great leadership in conducting that investigation. Although the investigation went for years and years and years, it was a very complex investigation. And they did a great job. And, and that's, a, that's a good example of uh, good leadership, people coming together, people with goals, people with morals, and getting the job done, which then creates public trust in people saying, hey, listen, yeah, uh, you know, the police department really knows 
what they're doing. However, there have been times where police departments have lost that public trust. And one of those instances was the Uvalde school shooting at Rob Elementary School on May 24th, 2022. A lot of public trust was lost during that event. Can you tell us where, where it went wrong? Well, the first question is what went right? Well, yeah, right. yeah, you're so, 100% right about that, yeah. So, so, so going back to, and again, I don't want to go into, you know, as a, as a law enforcement official, I don't want to be overly critical of any other law enforcement organization because at the end of the day, it's extremely difficult. I don't want to do Monday morning quarterbacking. However, there are certain things that are just fundamental. Whether you make mistakes on the field, whether you make bad decisions on the field, that's one thing. Another thing is when you're reporting information that is not accurate and you know that it's not accurate when you're embellishing the truth because you are so afraid going remember what i said originally uh, you're so afraid of whatever motivation drove you to misinform people to provide to them a picture that is inconsistent with what happened you can't do that now in addition to that remember public trust and training we talked about that earlier in the conversation when you see is that contrary to what's being taught when it comes to active shooter scenarios, the police force spent time or you know, their focus was on creating a perimeter around the site that prevented people from going into the danger zone. Okay. But the problem is the response to take down that imminent threat. Where was it? That's a problem. There. That's the, exactly. That's the problem. If think about the frustration of those parents who are listening to the gunshots, now you have a law enforcement official in front of you that now becomes a gatekeeper, has the ability, because the person is armed, to instead of preventing you from going into harm's way, doesn't go and face the threat. That's a major problem. So we're looking at operational problems, tactical problems. But when it comes to leadership, it's how the leadership official, the leader of the leadership officials handling that situation managed the dynamics. We can make mistakes. Sometimes our mistakes will lead to very you know, critical results. What you have uh, control over, and sometimes we don't have control over those results, but what you do have control over is your integrity, your credibility, and your trustworthiness. You only can give that away. When you stand behind the microphone to report to the people and tell what happened, it is your duty as a law enforcement official to tell the truth. And if what you're telling or what you're about to say, it's something that will compromise operations, then don't say it. And once again, educate people. We talked about that, you know, about that earlier in our conversation. Guide people. Walk people through the process. Don't impose your will on people. Just simply say, I can't talk about it. No. The people don't work for you. You as a law enforcement official, you work for the people. That means you have to guide them and explain to them why is it that there are certain details you cannot disclose at the time, but keep them informed by just simply letting them know that you, the situation is flowing, that the facts are evolving. That might be enough at the time. But what you cannot do is go back and, and tell the people that X or Y happened when, in fact, those things didn't happen. That's extremely damaging because... Eventually, people will find out. And once they find out, you're not going to be able to recover. That's very problematic. The same thing goes with your integrity as a law enforcement official. If you go in 
uh, you're part, I'm not saying that this is what happened necessarily with the uh, Uvalde uh, school shooting, but there are other instances where, for example, you might have a law enforcement official report to a tragic scene, and it might be a celebrity, for example, the, uh, what happened with Kobe Bryant's event, you know, when he crashed back in uh, January of 2020. How do we know that the law enforcement officials there or whomever had access to the scene treated the scene with the level of respect that it deserved? When you see photos, when you see, for example, information that hasn't been vetted through the proper channels, the question is, how in the world does that go out there? How in the world does that get filtered out? What we call the leaks. I'm sorry. That's part of your credibility as an organization. Again, we're not accusing anybody specific. We just simply trying to underscore the level of responsibility that we all as first responders have when it comes to, you know, securing a scene, ensuring that the people who need to have access to the scene have access to the scene as opposed to other people, but more importantly, respecting the dignity of the victims and the family members of the victims. So it's a very complex dynamic uh, when it comes to leadership. And for that, you have to delegate on the proper people. You have to train your, uh, you know, your followers the right way, and you have to trust them to do the job correctly because you can't be everywhere at all times. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the point about misinformation, I think sometimes in law enforcement agencies, and like you said, when those leaders get in front of those mics, hey, listen, there might be things that you can't say and, you know, because you don't want to jeopardize the investigation. You know, don't try to skirt around the uh, the issue. Just say, look, I can't say that at this point because we're on a current investigation. And don't give out misinformation because a lot of the times if you do give out misinformation, it will always come and bite you in the rear end. And that brings me to another point. Do you think misinformation had a lot to do with the George Floyd incident as well when it came to their leaders in Minneapolis? I, I think so. I think, again, going back, looking at the tragic events of, uh, that led to George Floyd's passing, you, you see that not only misinformation, but also ha- having the ability of recognizing and empowering your people to tell leaders when they're wrong, you are wrong. So if we dissect the case from a tactical standpoint, what I mean by tactical from the scene, you have a group of officials one individual, a higher level, who's engaged in a use of force. But there are other officials, other uh, police officers that perhaps ranked at a lower level, but they were there. If you don't have the presence of mind, because we're not going to Monday morning quarterback people, but we are going to dissect the case for what it's worth. If you see somebody screaming, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, but the person's already in custody, you already have control of the individual. Somebody has to have the proper training, proper you know, mindset to indicate to the individual who's hands-on, who, as, as I understand the case, ranked at a higher level that many of the people around him providing a perimeter security to let him know, hey, his control, take a step back, whatever the command, whatever training, whatever commands you've been trained with. We, you know, in my previous organization, we have a different lingo which I don't think is relevant to the conversation here. My point being is you have to let somebody know when he's about to be in the wrong before he is, he or she is in the wrong. That didn't happen in the George Floyd case. And perhaps if somebody would have taken the initiative to do that, we would not have a George Floyd situation as we did, unfortunately, 
which again has led to a criminal justice reform that has not only affected the local law enforcement arena, but also the federal sector. One of the things that happened, and this is public information, the Department of Justice had to change its use of force policy. A lot of the new standards come straight for the things that, you know, from the things that happened with the George Floyd case. Uh, and that's important. Uh, yeah. And you're 100% right. And you know what? You brought up something very, very important, especially with the George Floyd case, and that's criminal justice reform. And you're right. And you said it before. We have a lot of challenges and we have a lot of complexities in criminal justice. So my question would be now is, how can we better prepare the next generation of law enforcement leaders to embrace the challenges of leadership, especially when we're seeing so much reform right now in criminal justice? And it's so fluid. So this is a, that's a very complex question. It sounds simple, but it, it, it involves a complexity of issues that the vigilant eye would typically dismiss because you might say, well, hiring. Okay. You might say training. Okay. But if I train somebody to do the very wrong thing that we've been doing for the past 25 years, we're not doing anything. So you have to go back to a cultural change. You have to go back and revisit the instances, you know, revisit what has gone wrong where, as an organization, you came short when it came to serving your community. So cultural change is important. That's what I said at the beginning. You have to know your people. You have to know your community. You have to know their cultural identity. I cannot approach, if I'm a law enforcement official, federal law enforcement official operating in Washington, D.C., in a white-collar crime situation, you know, some sort of white-collar crime, my approach is going to be completely different than if I'm responding to an assault to a protectee uh, or a protected person at a secure site, right? The way I'm going to be engaging people is going to be different. So the key word here is you are supposed to dress the badge. Don't let the badge dress you. That's the concept that if, if there's anything that I can say in our conversation today uh, that will help shift that tie towards a better law enforcement practice. And that's a great expression too. I love that expression. I never heard of it uh, quite that way, but it's a great expression. Yeah, it's, it's no, I appreciate, you know. You dress uh, the, the shield, right. Don't let the shield dress you. Exactly, because at the end, if you do it otherwise, that's where people lose their minds. That's where people, and what I mean for losing their minds, is when they lose track of, remember the constitutional constraints? Yes. You might think you're doing the right thing, but you're not. So you have to go back to be educated. So how do we get better? Well, number one, it's, a, it's, it's your philosophy, your operational philosophy. We're going to encapsulate that with a term that I just said, which is you dress the batch, don't let the batch dress you. That also entails with diversity. Not everybody thinks the same, but at least we know that we have some common patterns of beliefs and we have to find out where are those so that we can build that trust, we can build that community interest, we can build that unity. The police can no longer believe that they can do the work by themselves. We can talk about this all week, all day, all year, but it takes actions. When you go out there and you do community policing, that's important. But you know where you get really tested? On the crisis, when you're responding to a use of force situation, how calibrated is your action? That comes with training. A lot of times we see officials 
who are using the wrong level of force. So I could, we could attribute that to poor training. We can attribute that to, you know, lack of training because that, that happens sometimes and the lack of understanding of what those constitutional constraints are. So that those are the things that are important. Your hiring is also important. Educating your people is also important. You cannot wait until you're about to retire to then be looking for good candidates. No, as a senior official, you should be able to go and, and train you know, and, and explain, share a little bit about the world, the police work to the community, have those community engagements, go to schools, show people that police officers, law enforcement officials are people too. They're not your enemy. They are not your enemy. So you start at the lowest level, you start educating your people so that, remember going back to trying to recruit the best people within the community. So those, those individuals can grow up looking at you know, working for the police force as an option, not, you know, being defiant to the police force as the way to go, because that's what society pushes you to do. And we see that all the time. So yeah. that, those are the things that I, I could say, you know, without going into you know technicalities of what we can do better. Hiring is extremely important. One of the big problems that we've seen uh, in the past five to 10 years, it's hiring, not only hiring proper candidates, what is the fact that is a massive amount of candidates going through the hiring process? That's because a lot of times police organizations, they don't take the time to start harvesting those potential candidates. And now you have a big chunk of people retiring. So that institutional knowledge leaves with their retirement. It creates a gap. Now we bring a, you know, a huge amount of people, a huge gap of individuals through the main doors. And now we're asking them to perform at the same level somebody who had 25, 30 years on the job. But that individual only has, you know, a very short time developing that level of experience that is important and needed. So hiring is important. Training is important. And also education. Unlike when I started back in, you know, 98, even the idea of going back to school wasn't something that was that popular within the law enforcement community. Nowadays, it is. So the question now is, how do we make those services and products available or known to the law enforcement community? That's why, for example, studying criminal justice, you know, going, you know, finishing your bachelor's degree, finishing your master's degree. It's a lot more than just simply getting a bigger paycheck. It's more of what growing within your you know, current position and be better at your job. That should be your north. How can you be better at your job? Promotions, they'll come in by themselves. And if they don't come in by themselves, that's okay. Because at the end of the day, none of us got in, you know, in law enforcement to be chief of police or be assistant directors or anything else. We had to go back to that first day we got on the job. What really motivated us, which is, I would imagine, at least we can say from my perspective, is that gratification of serving somebody, making that other person's world a better world. That's what we're looking for. That, that's the type of uh, individuals and the mindset that I will hope that the new generation will espouse so that uh, that tendency of falling under the uh, temptation of going into corrupt activities, lying, or acting in any way, shape, or form that will tarnish the badge, it's not really an option. So again, going back to my original phrase, dress the badge, don't let the badge dress you. Love that phrase. And I just want to thank you so much on behalf of Monroe College, and blind justice. Thank you so much to Dr. Rios Colaza. We are so happy and we're honored that you did the podcast today. And I know we all 
now have a better perspective of what criminal justice leadership entails and how it's important and how we can do better. So I, I really want to say thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And it's my pleasure. And I truly look forward to these engagements. I hope that we can do this more often. I really enjoy this. I think it's extremely gratifying. It's my way of giving back to the community, but also showing not only the, the student body within, you know, here at Monroe, but also our fellow uh, law enforcement officials that uh, we are all on the same boat. We all want the same thing, which is a better future, a better society, being in a position that we can look at each other and see that we're not opponents, but we're on the same side of the issues. It's just a matter of finding that commonality and work through the differences so that we can let our humanity be our north as opposed to our personal interest be the driving factor. So thank you. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And But before we leave, uh, I'd like to ask everybody to join us for our next episode on Blind Justice. Believe it or not, there's going to be our ninth episode. It's going to be devastating violence in our jails and prisons, keeping correction officers and inmates safe. Until next time, have a great day. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.